Hi, I'm Heidi Morin. I'm the founder and CEO of Parity Healthcare Analytics. And Femtech to me is ensuring that we improve our maternal mortality outcomes by ensuring that we have the right amount of nursing staff available in the hospital when patients need it. And I'm really trying to focus on that and really help improve our outcomes so we can improve healthcare overall. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today is a very special episode. It's episode 200, everybody. What? I started the show in March of 2020 in lockdown. Thought I would just interview a handful of experts, get a little show going. No idea that this would turn into the voice of the industry. Um, I am so grateful to all of our subscribers. Thanks to each and every listener. Uh, We know you're out there. We know you're building great things and we are excited to interview a hundred more people. So let's keep going, y'all. All right, episode 200. In today's episode, I interview Heidi Morin, founder and CEO of Parity Healthcare Analytics. Heidi has been a registered nurse for over 20 years, specializing in women's health and neonatal intensive care units. In 2020, Heidi founded Parity Healthcare Analytics. Parity Healthcare Analytics is challenging the status quo of how hospitals currently calculate and budget for nurse staffing in perinatal units, which includes obstetrics and the NICU. In this interview, we discuss the cost of staffing a women's health unit and how it's led to maternal healthcare deserts for 52% of U.S. counties not having a single gynecologist, causes of burnout in nurses, and how correct staffing of birthing centers not only could decrease hospital costs, but increase the number of birthing centers in the U.S. and improve women's health outcomes. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the relationship between hospital staffing and outcomes for women's healthcare. Learn more about Parity Healthcare Analytics at www.paritystaffing.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brittany. Great to be here. Where are you calling us from today? I'm actually in Scarborough, Maine, where it's very cold with lots of snow. (laughs) In Maine. Oh my gosh. We're having like this major ice storm across the United States. Are you part of that right now? Not right now. We expect some snow, but uh, hopefully no ice. Wow. Well, God bless all of you. (laughs) I moved from Texas to North Carolina. Texas has had more snow in the last two years since Mm -hmm. I moved to North Carolina, and I haven't had any here. So it's like this weird thing. I moved to get some more seasons, and Texas all of a sudden now has a winter. Um, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's so great to uh, have you online with us today. You know, when I met you, you were talking about an area of women's health that we actually haven't covered here and is really critical. And it's not just talking about the clitoris or the uterus or the vulva (laughs) or the breast. It's about actually the facilitation of women's healthcare. And I think that is super fascinating, obviously not an area 
that I'm an expert in, but um, that's why we have guests on the show. It's not just the Britney show. And so we're excited, (laughs) Heidi, for you to uh, teach us a little bit about this. But before we jump into staffing requirements of women's health departments, let's kick it off at learning a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about your background? You know, what, what's your, what are your credentials? How do you know about hospital staffing and, and how did you end up here working in women's health? Well, perfect. So I'm a nurse by trade. I've been in a nurse for over 20 years, which you can probably tell from my lovely, uh, gorgeous gray hair that I've got going on. Um, but I've specifically been working in women and children's health my entire career. So I started out as a neonatal ICU nurse um, in a very large hospital in Maryland. And then I ended up moving to Maine where it's cold. Um, but I ended up being a labor delivery and postpartum nurse. Um, so I got to see both ends of a spectrum um, when patients are in the hospital having their babies, both sick babies, well babies and well moms and sick moms. Um, And then I stumbled, as this happens a lot with nurse leaders, we stumbled into leadership and I became a charge nurse and then a nurse manager and then eventually a nurse director where I was able to run a very large birthing facility, um, which had a NICU, had a labor delivery, postpartum, uh, newborn nursery, et cetera, and able to help the the team develop care uh, for patients. And while I was a director, I was able to obtain my master's in nursing and a master's in business administration. Um, to really give me the tools and expertise necessary to to run the departments from a business perspective and a clinical perspective. And then most recently, I actually stepped down from my nurse director role and became the founder and CEO of Parity Healthcare Analytics. Amazing. What is Parity Healthcare? So Parity Healthcare Analytics is actually a healthcare software company. Um, We started it out in 2020. Um, and so what it is, is it provides a tool uh, to hospital settings, perinatal units specifically, so labor delivery, postpartum, NICU units, provides them with a tool to calculate acuity-based nurse staffing and give them data analytics to provide to them in real time. So they really have the information and data that they need to know to adequately staff their units. Well, that is why you're on the show today. <laughs> Because if the topic is staffing, you know, women's health departments, well, you are the lady to talk to about this. Yes. Um, I'd love us to just lay some groundwork here in terms of vocabulary. I am even hearing myself like not knowing I'm saying department. I'm so academic. I'm like the department <laughs> of like, you know, women's health. And I'm like, I don't even think that's the right word. You also mentioned birthing center. You said NICU. Can you kind of just give us the rundown of like, what are the basic units like of treatment for women's health? What are the basic departments? Yes. So when we say the birthing facility, we talk about all the departments that help the patient from laboring process all the way to the postpartum process. And we typically say perinatal when we say uh, that entire process. And what that encompasses is usually an obstetrical ED or triage unit. It talks about labor and delivery unit, which includes the operating room for patients that need C-sections. That includes the postpartum and newborn nursery floor, so where you go after you deliver. And also some hospitals have what we call an antepartum unit, which is where people who are still pregnant who need high-risk care are hospitalized and cared for until delivery or until it's safe to go home, as well as neonatal ICU units. So it encompasses all of those different areas of nursing. And some facilities have all that activity in one unit because they're a small hospital, And some hospitals are so large, they need to actually have separate units for all those different areas of care. Wow. And um, where do doulas and midwives fit into this? Are they just like sprinkled throughout? 
some facilities have midwives and doulas and some facilities don't. And usually you can see uh, the outcomes are slightly different in those different uh, provider models of care. So midwives and doulas are typically part of the laboring and delivery process, being with the patient, really helping them that with that low intervention physiological birth process. And sometimes they're seen in the postpartum um, area, but really focused on that labor and delivering process. And when you say postpartum, you know, I imagine women are usually in the hospital like 72 hours or so after they deliver. Um, but postpartum is like the whole year, right? After mm-hmm. you deliver. So uh, what extent of postpartum are you referring to? I'm referring to when they're in the hospital and then you still need care. So usually vaginal deliveries are between 24 to 48 hours after they've delivered. They're still in the hospital to make sure they don't have any um, issues or complications after birth and that they're bonding and feeding and knowing how to care for their baby. And then C-section patients are usually 48 to 72 hours because they had a surgical intervention. So wait, so I'm sorry, I missed this. What was the number of hours for vaginal birth afterwards? 24 to 48. My God, that's so, is that crazy? Do you think that's crazy? It is crazy. Okay, because I'm like, um, (laughs) what? If you asked a man to deliver a bowling ball through his penis, like he would want someone to continue to monitor him for more than (laughs) just till the next day. (laughs) That's a lot of information to squeeze in in a very short period of time because there's so much education that you have to provide the parents after delivery. And just, God forbid we talk about what happens, you know, beforehand. We have to have you experience it and be like, oh, by the way, you're, your perineum ripped in there. What? Yes. Yeah. It's like, yes. <laughs> it's dead seem crazy. We used to be like 30 years ago, you were in the hospital for at least a week after delivering babies. And now we've just shortened that process to, to the point where I don't think you can get any, any shorter than what we are now. Um, is that because of money you think? I don't know. I think care has improved, but I do think we're swinging the pendulum a little bit too much where we're trying to be too efficient. Uh-huh. You know, with patients and wanting to get them out and discharge so we can open up the bed for the next patient. Um, I do think there's a, a happy medium. And I think we we kind of need to swing back a little bit more um, in, in the middle versus one week versus one day uh, of care. Very cool. And last question here is where do like your gynecologist and like your annual pap smear fit into all of this? Is this is that a totally separate thing? Yes. So that's on the outpatient setting. So my area of expertise and where I've been focusing my careers in the inpatient setting in the hospital, the gynecologic, you know, your annual exam, all that, that's usually in the outpatient setting when you go to the office and, and you're seen in there. Understood. And you're like, is it the six or eight week uh, post-birth checkup for women? Does that happen in these wards that you're talking about? No, so that will happen in the outpatient setting. So they'll see the provider after they're discharged from the hospital. And they're depending if they had a C-section or a vaginal birth, they're seen at a certain period of time to make sure everything is going okay. Yeah, got it. Wow. Already learned so much. And we literally just have (laughs) gone over vocab, (laughs) like the very (laughs) basics of what this looks like. So let's jump into why this is even important. What is the current relationship between hospital staffing and outcomes for women's health? Yes. So that's actually been well studied in the nursing realm in all the different areas of nursing. We're just talking about if you have inadequate staffing and what it can lead to in the negative effects to patients and into nurse uh, as a nurse uh, satisfaction and stress level. So there's been studies showing like if one additional patient that a nurse has that she's responsible for can lead to increased patient remission, patient death, also nurse turnover and burnout. So there's obviously negative effects as it relates to you know, patient outcomes and how they're staffing their units. 
There's only one study in our area of nursing, the perinatal, the OB, you know, labor and delivery, postpartum uh, units that's been done. But it did show and it was consistent with the other study showing that it definitely contributes to negative patient outcomes and negative staff outcomes. With such a high and growing maternal mortality rate, mm-hmm. do you think that someone should probably redo that study or do another one? Oh, as any <laughs> anything in women's health needs a significantly <laughs> more study, um, there needs to be so much more research as it relates to outcomes for the maternal mortality specifically um, realm and what's contributing to the maternal mortality and the disparities within the maternal mortality uh, rate. Do you think- there's potentially more of a link between staffing and outcomes than is currently appreciated? Absolutely. So the CDC just published in 2022 when they reviewed 36 states' maternal uh, review committees looking at why did patients die um, Mm -hmm. in the hospitals or post-hospitals. They found over 80% of the deaths were preventable. Wow. And that is... That is heartbreaking, one, <laughs> uh, but just shows that, you know, if we had more opportunity to be assessing our patients, evaluating the subtle changes in their care or subtle changes in their, their vital signs or symptoms, that we could potentially be preventing these, these deaths. And because there's, our patients are sicker now than they were 30 years ago, where we have a lot of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, we have a lot of hemorrhaging now, postpartum hemorrhages. And if we had the appropriate staffing, we could intervene faster. But when you have nurses that are spread so thin that they're seeing more patients than they should, then it's very hard for them to pick up on those subtle changes and then report it to the provider and then intervene in a timely fashion. Yes. Well, that actually leads me right into my next question, which is what is the staffing requirements of a women's health ward? You know, I'm Mm -hmm. seeing in my mind, like, you know, stock images of a woman giving birth and there's like a nurse on each leg and a doctor (laughs) and a, you know, a husband who's sweating and white in the face, you know, like, so tell me a little bit about, (laughs) yeah. What are the actual staffing requirements of a women's health, you know, a birthing ward and how does that differ than, you know, uh, a different, you know, ward in the hospital? Yeah. I think most people would be extremely surprised to find out the actual way to staff in the maternal child area, the birthing centers, the perinatal areas, is one of the most complex areas to staff in a hospital because there's so many different patient scenarios that happen. So like we were talking about those different units or the different phases of care that patients can be in, there's different nurse-patient ratios based off those different scenarios. So if they're actively laboring and they're going to be delivering, they're one nurse to one patient. That's what the standards are. So we're lucky that we have standards to go by in our industry, um, but there's 22 different standards to go by because there's so so many different scenarios. So when she's in postpartum, there's a different scenario, different ratios. When she's antepartum, still pregnant, high risk, there's different ratios. She's in the OR, there's different ratios. So it really depends on the situation. And that's why it's so hard for nurse leaders like myself and others to really articulate what you need for staffing because it's so complex. Mm -hmm. For example, our industry standards that we go by, they're written and they're 96 pages long, explaining our different ratios that we need. So that's a a very long read. (laughs) Yeah. And and that just highlights the complexity of our area. If you have to have staffing standards that are 96 pages long. Yeah. And it, is that also incorporating things like, because I've been learning through this podcast that like cardiologists are involved, neurologists are involved, you mm-hmm. know, with preeclampsia and strokes happening. And, you know, like, so is that incorporated in this 96 page document? No. So what this no, document is it's not even, it's like extra. Nursing. 
Wow. That's extra. So this is the standards that I refer to are nursing staffing oh. standards. Whoa. So it's telling how many nurses are necessary um, to care for patients in those different scenarios. Wow. So it's just, it's purely just focused on that, not even yes. a provider or midwife, you know, calculations. I mean, I do feel like that's grossly needed because we have a significant issue with, you know, access to care yeah. across America. So it's, this is just purely nursing, um, but we're the wow. ones who are at the bedside 24 hours a day with our patients. So that's I think right. it's important that we adhere to those, uh, uh those standards. Um, quick question. I know we're talking about nursing, but I have this question. If I have it, other people have it. Um, what if you're seeing your, you know, uh, doctor for your baby and they're on vacation the week you go into labor, like all of a sudden, do you just get a new doctor? Like, or do doctors have to always just be ready to deliver your baby or what? Can you tell me about that? Yes. So usually when you go to a, you know, a physician, you pick your position, you're assigned, assigned a practice. So okay. if a doctor's on vacation, someone else in that practice could be a midwife, could be a, another medical provider, um, or is going to be the one, whoever's on call, to care for you when you go into uh, labor and delivery. Got it. All right. Cool. <laughs> I was always yeah, it's wondering. very complex. Like, there, this area uh, of care is highly complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Heidi, 52% of counties in the United States are lacking a, you know, a gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, and I, again, I know we're talking about nurses, but do you think that these, the amount of nurses that are needed is one of the factors that's causing, you know, rural areas in America to not have birthing centers? Yeah. So we call them maternal care deserts. So basically the the maternal patient population doesn't have a place to go. That's within close proximity to their house. They have to drive one or two, three hours to get care because all these places are closing which is is obviously not appropriate, I don't think, from my perspective, that they would have to travel that far, especially if there was an emergency happening uh, with their pregnancy. But yeah, so a lot of these places are closing because the high cost as it relates to keep a program up and running to, to provide those services. So providers are expensive, their malpractice is expensive, the number of nurses that you need to support patients in this type of uh, environment, there's, you need a lot of them. And that's expensive. So a lot of them can't afford to keep those types of services open. So they end up making a decision from a hospital or system perspective to close their services and close the doors. Um, but then that leaves the patient, um, obviously, to, to decide how they're going to get care, which is something that needs to be addressed significantly um, here if, in the U.S. If there's not a birthing center within like two hours of where a woman lives, which is not far-fetched, like I think it's something like mm-hmm. 7 million women live in that exact yes. condition. Um, uh, what does she do? Like, where does she have her baby? <laughs> so <laughs> if it's an emergency, she's going to go to the closest hospital, regardless of what services they provide. And uh, she might be delivering in the emergency department with, uh, with staff who aren't trained, you know, yeah. for this type of care. Um, so as a daily routine. So it's, it's unfortunate um, that we're in this scenario in America. It, I mean, it just kind of compounds the issue of women's health um, and that we're not really having a lot of effort and focus to support um, maternal health care. Uh, you brought up malpractice and the cost of that. Mm-hmm. Do nurses need mal- malpractice as well as or just the physicians? No, just the physicians, but we are seeing a trend, which you might have noticed, you know, in the most recent, you know, recent, I think it was last summer, where a nurse was, you know, on trial for an error that caused a patient's death. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that in the future where nurses will need to get malpractice insurance. 
um because now we're bringing in ourselves into into legal cases um and usually it's it's a systematic issue it's not the nurses purposely trying to harm patients it's because her workload is so heavy that she's not able to pay attention to what she needs to do enough um and it ends up leading to to errors which she yeah. includes death Again, I recently gave a talk on um, the lack of or our declining rate of gynecologists. So that's why I have some statistics ready mm-hmm. at hand. But I I saw that one of the reasons they were closing down uh, birthing centers across America is because the cost. And one of the costs was the malpractice insurance. And they said for the average physician, it's $7,000 a year. For the average uh, obstetrics gynecologist, it's 50000 And if you're mm-hmm. in California or New York, it was $200,000 a year. I was like, so we're yeah. like medical students are not choosing that path because almost all the their liability. salaries go into that. And the liability yeah. is so high. Yeah. There's a lot of litigation in, in maternal child health. There, there unfortunately is because there's a lot of morbidity and mortality. There's a lot of issues and ill effects that are happening to patients and, and they're bringing forward cases, uh, yeah. you know, from the providers or, and, or the health institutions. Let's talk about nurse burnout. So we saw during the pandemic, nurses were just totally worked down to the bone. Um, So let's, can you talk about that in the context of women's health? Like, you know, specifically birthing nurses, like what happened to Mm -hmm. them? Like, did the partners and families not being allowed to be there, like have an effect on nurse burnout too? Like I can just imagine nurses are some of the most compassionate people. And I'm like, I'm, I, I could easily see them trying to step up as the emotional companion to moms or women who were birthing without any family, any partner in the room, you know, Mm -hmm. at a certain point in the pandemic. So just kind of talk us through that. Yeah, I think the pandemic was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back type scenario. I think nurses were already at the edge of being stretched because of a lot of the constraints on health facilities to be efficient, effective and productive or the labor resources, cutting labor resources. So I feel like the foundation was already cracked and they were feeling understaffed before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and then you had all the stress related to that. So not only do you have patients that are coming with COVID, staff are calling out because they have COVID themselves. They can't return to work. So then it compounds the issue of staffing more. (laughs) And then so you're having to care for multiple patients because of the, the pandemic that's happening, picking up extra shifts and travel nurses. There was just all this added stress during the pandemic that just, I think, catapulted the issue that the front lines don't already have the appropriate amount of staff, just baseline, let alone to support a pandemic and, and the patients that were coming. And like you said, they didn't have to support people. Um, some hospitals were really super strict where just the father of the baby or the significant other could be there, but no one else, you know, that was there for to support the mom um, could come in, no doulas, you know, it was literally uh, shut down where anyone could enter into the hospital and a lot more responsibility went onto the nurse during that process because she had to fill that void or he or she had to fill that void for the patient. Yep. Um, my sister had a baby in November of 2020. And at that point, the husband or father was allowed to go be in the room. And so Brian, the dad, he was able to go. But I remember the morning my sister's water broke. My mom, my sister and I, we were all in the the dad, we're all in the car. We dropped them off. We're like, bye, because we weren't allowed in. And then I remember we went into the parking garage and paid and parked. And then we were like just sitting there for about mm-hmm. five minutes. And then we were like, I guess we just go home. Like she's not coming out yeah. for another day or so at least. Like, 
but it was like this weird experience. Like my mom dropped off her daughter to have a baby and had to just be like, bye, honey. Like, call me. (laughs) You know, it was like this really, we were like, well, I guess let's go out for breakfast, I guess. (laughs) A lot of special moments were lost uh, during the pandemic, you know, with the family bonding, the family support, um, just because because of the situation, right? And, And a lot of people were, especially in the beginning, freaking out. We didn't really know how it was being transmitted and it was just everything yeah. kind of shut down uh, pretty quickly. That's right. I just recently watched uh, Fair Play. If you haven't watched the documentary yet on Hulu, it's amazing. It's about the like unpaid labor of women in the in the world. Um, and w- one of the things they were talking about is that, you know, paternity leave would really help with at home like workload because he or you know the dad would able be able to catch up on stuff like is this cry from the baby a hungry cry or is it a sleep cry mm-hmm. right where the woman learns all these little itty bitty mannerisms because she's there right and then yep. the dad doesn't and it starts to dramatically split the way that they respond or act with children and so I also wonder if during that time period where the fathers weren't allowed in the ward like that was like a really critical moment for bonding and learning about breastfeeding and stuff that the dads missed out on. Do you think, you know, did you, did you see that? Did you hear about that? And where do you think nurses play a role in like sending women home with information or families home with information about how to raise their kids? Yeah, it was, it was hard because even during the pandemic, the the amount of time that people in the hospital actually shortened even further. Oh because my God. Patients and we did, patients we just covered that it's not... Hospital. Yeah, it's not long enough already, but people were going home literally at the 24 hour mark after delivering. So it it condensed the problem even further that you there was no way you could give them all the education that they potentially needed to look out for themselves as as their own body, but also how to take care of a baby that they've never had to the first time parents, like how to take care of a baby, how to change a diaper, all feed a baby. And then the formula shortage happened. I mean, there were so many things that went wrong uh, during the pandemic that impacted, I think, families negatively um, yeah. during this process. Yeah, just little stuff too. Like I remember, um, my my sister brought the newborn home. His name is Luca, healthy two and a half year old now. But like, I didn't know you can't give newborns water. Like, yeah. there was just some basic life stuff that I was like, oh, like you know. Is he, is he thirsty for water? You know, like my mom is like, oh, you never give babies water. I'm like, <laughs> no one gave me this book. All right. No one gave me a memo on like, I thought they needed to stay hydrated, you know, like, so there's just a lot what, of yeah. nuanced stuff, right? There's a lot of nuanced stuff. And you can't assume that people know what they're supposed to do. And you can't assume everyone's prepared like they're supposed to prepare. And we don't really have a standard process in America of proper childbirth education and education dissemination, as well as, you know, prenatally before they deliver, but also postpartum in, in the support they need, not only for their physical health, but for their mental health and emotional health after they deliver a baby and understanding the changes that they're going to go through um, during that time. So how, uh, last question about the, this nurses, um, in terms of like the staffing requirements, is there a lack a pipeline of nurses after all this burnout? Uh, are we looking so, at, you know, worst times ahead? It's, it's multifactorial. So it, there's a lot of reasons why we have a nursing shortage right now. So the pandemic drove away a lot of nurses. So a lot of nurses who have a license left the bedside to do something else. They still have a license, but they're not actively practicing at the bedside because of they just had moral and ethical dilemmas with just having to take care of so many patients, not feeling like they're giving the proper care to patients. We also have a study that showed in the last, I think, three years is that it's a 95% burnout rate uh, since the pandemic started. 
uh, for nurses and they expect more nurses to leave um, the bedside, which is only going to enhance the problem that we have of having access. We had a lot of nurses leave for traveling because you got paid more uh, to go travel nursing and to be deployed uh, at a contract at a hospital. And we also have a huge issue as it relates to just faculty nursing and having enough faculty nursing to teach up and coming nurses, you know, how to practice so they can take the exam, pass, and then uh, become a licensed nurse. You know, we're seeing, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but we're seeing this lack of uh, medical students choosing obstetrics and gynecology as their Mm -hmm. track. Do we see something similar in nursing? Uh, I don't see it really perinatal. It's really, usually people really want to work in this area of nursing. It's usually they start out on like a med surge floor um, and then they uh, get a few years of experience and then come over to labor and delivery because everyone is is just enticed to buy that type of nursing. So we haven't seen that yet, Uh um, but it's only going to be a matter of time when the shortage is going to impact this area of nursing as well. And we're not going to be able to get applications in uh, for open positions. We find that based on the race uh, or ethnicity of doctors, women's health outcomes are actually improved, especially if they're the same. So like black female patients are looking for black gynecologists. Mm-hmm. Have you heard or seen any studies about the race or ethnicity of nurses affecting the outcomes of, you know, women of diversity? I haven't seen any studies as it relates to that, but I think that's very interesting. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see where where everything goes in the next few years and especially the disparities, because we know that Black uh, Americans are having higher mortality rates than white Americans and trying to figure out why that's the case and doing studies on like, does it matter the race of their provider in the patient race? And is there a correlation there Um, or nurse, like you said, but there is just a very vast lack of research um, in this this area. There was a recent study that just got published this week in a a retrospective where they looked at um, over 1 million patients in the past, and they looked at what is the biggest risk for heart disease in women. And what they found overwhelmingly, statistically significantly, this just came out, they said it was preeclampsia in pregnancy was the biggest risk factor for heart disease and stroke later in life. And Mm -hmm. so I actually voice memoed one of my employees. I was cooking dinner last night thinking about this study and the implications because that's my life and that's what I do. I (laughs) chop onions and think about maternal mortality. Oh, my God. Um, But I thought, um, uh, you know, what what arguments potentially could we have? And I was thinking in terms of like um, the abortion debate going on right now, yes, should it even yes. be a debate? But I was like, I wonder if there's some underlying loophole we could pull here that says like pregnancy is literally such a high risk condition because it leads to future heart disease and stroke. Could we actually argue that like forcing us to be pregnant by not having policy that allows us to choose like implicates our own death I know. almost, you know, like seriously, know. there's it just having baby in itself is high risk. So forcing people to carry a baby against their choice um, is, is a risk in itself. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, even if you were a low risk patient with no, you know, comorbidities, you don't have any underlying diseases, you still have a risk of death. It's yeah. not zero. Yeah, so absolutely. for me, like the whole change, the Supreme Court decision it is only going to make the maternal mortality rate higher. We only have stats from 2020 to tell us what the maternal mortality rate is. I I don't even want to think about what our rate is going to be published at for 2021, 22, 23, um, uh, from the pandemic impact, as well as the Supreme Court decision, because we know we're going to have a higher rate because people aren't going to be able to get the care that they need. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, 
Absolutely insane. I have, uh, by the way, one last thing about the article, the stock image for the article. This is a big published, fully funded, huge landmark study. The, the stock image they used for it is a man holding his chest is a white man in a business suit holding his chest (laughs) with like a red, like red mark around his chest. Like, Oh, he has painted chest. And I was like, what a spit what? in our eye that it's a man on a woman's heart health study and he's exhibiting a male specific symptom of heart attack. That is, uh, well, that's classic. It's like, classic. Because we're, uh, you know, we just recently shared that article and I said, share the article and then let's write our own article about why the hell the stock image is a man. And like, that's how systemic this issue is that somebody yeah. chose that. Someone chose it, you know, like yeah. it someone makes no chose sense. it. No, makes no sense. Um, I do want to talk one more time about parity healthcare analytics. So, you know, you're transforming this 96 page booklet into a software (laughs) that actually hopefully makes our lives easier and improves women's maternal mortality. Can you just let us in on a little bit of like, how are you doing that? What are the potential like benefits of getting this right? Yeah. So the tool is multifaceted. So it's, it's meant for two different types of users. So the first user is the charge nurse, the person who's running the unit, running the labor delivery floor, the postpartum floor, and making decisions about staffing, like how many nurses do I need to to provide care? So she's the first user, and it tells her within 10 to 15 seconds, based on your patient population that you are seeing and their volume level and their acuity level, how sick they are, this is how many nurses you need to support that. So it tells her specifically, because it's taking those industry staffing standards and translating it to an operational tool for her to use. So it's taking like the subjectivity, the emotion out of the decision-making and saying, this is exactly what you need for staffing. And Heidi, then she puts, also telling me that that doesn't exist right now and that it's based correct. off of like a woman sitting there with, and by the way, yes. I do want to circle back on the gender of nurses because we're using she and her a lot. Yes. But yes. in the meantime, put a pin in that. Uh, she, they right now are just sitting there with like a Google sheet trying to figure it out themselves. There's currently no software. Correct. So that's what I, that's why I de- end up developing the tool because there's nothing out there. I searched high and low. I mean, there's a lot of homegrown paper tools, some Excel tools that people have created, but this area of nursing is so complex. I think no one's tackled it. And yeah. then being like a nurse deciding we need to fix this. This is not okay. We need an objective tool based off data to give us real objective information to make decisions on how to staff and not use someone's just, you know, experience as a charge nurse, you know, assessing the floor saying, I think I need this many nurses and not really able to make a a true decision based off statistics. So it's a tool to give her that information. And then it also assesses how far off she is from what she should be working with. And then the other other user is the nurse leader, like someone like myself when I was in a director role, because everything that's been in the system tells the leader, this is what you should be at for staffing from a ratio perspective. It t- converts things to the financial language to that the finance and executive teams need to hear. So it's called worked hours per patient day. And it gives them the information that you need to showcase this is what we need for staffing. Because before this, there was no tool, like I was saying, to tell nurse leaders and charge nurses what you need for staffing based off of your industry standards. Wow. So there was just not. nothing. Of course yeah, not. Which is, <laughs> that's the case for pretty much every area of nursing. We're just lucky that we have some industry staffing standards to help guide our work where there's other professional you know, areas of nursing that don't have guidelines to tell them how they should work. 
do you think that your software is going to, um, for better or worse, increase the amount of money needed to staff because you're revealing how much more you need? Or do you think there's actually opportunity for hospitals to save money because they're staffing more efficiently? So we've been measuring outcomes in our current users. And what we've actually found on average, each facility saves around $136,000 in labor cost savings from the use of the tool. Because one, it objectifies the decision-making that charge nurses are making. So not only when to flex up and have more nurses, but also when to flex down consistently and have less staff on when it's slower. But it also provides them with an understanding of how much they're using of high-cost nursing dollars. So my tool is able to capture how many traveler hours are you using, how much overtime are you using, things that cost more money than a budgeted staff nurse. And then we do a comparison of how much they could save if they replace those high cost dollars with regular staff. So we didn't go into it thinking we were going to save money for organizations, but we end up finding that we are actually saving money because wow. we're able to share, give you the data that you need to make a true assessment of what you need for staffing. Well, Heidi, this is incredible because yeah. again, like I said, it was just kind of prepping for that talk I gave as to this, you know, this maternal care deserts that you you were referring to. And one of the things was that hospitals were like, it's just not affordable to have a birthing ward. Like um, 50% of births are covered by Medicaid and Medicaid only offers 50% reimbursement for the actual cost of a, mm -hmm. a delivery. And so these wards are like, it's just a, a money bleed. You know, I go to- yes hospital conferences and stuff. And they talk about like the Burling ward being one of the most expensive uh, wards and not profitable. Right. And so it's like mm -hmm. a, one of the first things to get cut because also like, why would we prioritize women and babies, but you know, whatever. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I think that's such awesome news to hear Heidi, that you're actually saving people money with strategic staffing and improving outcomes for the patients. That's I mean, yeah. usually improved I mean, outcomes is, means more money in my exactly. mind. At least, so. <laughs> exactly. And I think you bring up a one good point. I just want to highlight, I think the payer issue, regardless if it's private payer, governmental payer, the fact that we're not reimbursing for maternal care is a complete shame, I think, on, on our system because we, we highly reimburse for operating procedures, you know, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, you know, cardiac cats, all these other procedures are happening in the hospital. But notoriously, at least since I've been a leader, maternal care is not reimbursed at the same equity, uh, it, which doesn't make any sense because for me, it's like an unconscious bias within the system itself that we don't value maternal care as much as other types of procedures or services. Um, and I think that's just completely unfortunate. It needs to change. And it's a conversation that's happening at a national level, yeah. but that's another huge part because if we were able to be reimbursed, there wouldn't be probably as many care deserts that we have. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, we're birthing tax people. You know, you yeah. think they might even give us like a payout because we did it. Like, thank you for producing someone who's going to continue to pay us, you know, like, so, oh my goodness. Um, Heidi, this has been such an informative conversation. I've learned a lot. It's an area we don't talk about enough. I'm so glad we finally have covered it. Um, love that you're working on this. You are definitely the, uh, the template that is Femtech, which is woman in position of, you know, at least some authority saying this is this, this is broken and I'm going to do something about it. So <laughs> thank you for being one of those people. I love it. We have two last questions. Our listeners love the first one yes. is. Um, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? 
Yeah. So I definitely, well, I'm obviously biased. I think, you know, maternal, you know, mortality is a place that needs to be focused, but I also think uh, maternal mental health is a huge uh, area that we are underserving our patients, you know, and figuring out how we can get services to patients sooner um, to pick up on the subtle signs of postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, um, suicide rates, as it relates to um, what's going on. I mean, I think just in, in, in essence, stigma of mental health in general is awful. But as it relates to maternal health, it's, I think, needs a significant more focus. Uh, I went to a postpartum webinar probably almost a year ago, and they had a graph that showed like the mental, like, what do we see? What are we actually talking about when we're saying the mental health and postpartum depression and stuff? And it was like, we're literally talking about suicide. Can we say the word suicide? Because it's like, we're not talking about sad, teared up women like we are, but at the same time, we're also talking about to her going to kill herself. Right. And in yes. that talk I gave the other day about the, uh, uh, deserts, um, I was talking, looking at the economic burden of this, because unfortunately I know that usually it's money that moves the needle more yeah. than like women are dying. Unfortunately, right. We were just balancing <laughs> those two things. Um, but I, I was looking at the, uh, economic burden of maternal mortality and the number one ec- cost for economic burden is the mental health part. And it was $18 billion a year because of uh, suicide and all the costs that go to when a mom kills herself one year after having a childbirth, all of the things that have to happen and, you mm-hmm. know, systems in play and all of this stuff. It was just devastating to me. And it was like, oh, my God, like this is not only are women killing themselves, but like it's they're doing it a lot and it's costing us mm-hmm. a ton of money. And like, this is all preventable, right? If yes. we, if we put some systems into play here. So I focus on preventative healthcare, not reactive healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think it's really important that we start to talk about that. Like postpartum isn't just us feeling sad. It's like women are literally killing themselves. Like just yes. to really, you know, I think that that is such a sad thing to think about a woman with a newborn, she would do that. So maybe that's why culturally or so- socially, we are not saying the word suicide, but mm-hmm. I think that that that's what we got to bring home if we really want to yes. talk about what's happening. So thank you for bringing ma- ma- maternal mental health up. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful, especially you're a femtech founder, early stage, two, almost three years in, right? So what do you think our industry needs? I think, of course, again, this is bias. I think we need more clinical entrepreneurs. I think we need more nurse, physician, midwife, entrepreneurs, because we're at the front lines. We are absolutely able to see what's broken in the system. And from a low, macro level to the micro level, and we we know what isn't working. So we know what's working, what's not working, and typically we know the workarounds. So and we're just natural problem solvers, problem solvers, because we want to care for patients in the best way possible. So I feel like there needs to be more clinical entrepreneurs coming forward saying, this is a trend of what's broken, and here's my idea to fix it. How do we balance that with our lack of nurses? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just extracting the, they're all there. The ideas are okay. there. It's just people don't know how to navigate, you know, how do I get fund, grant funding? How do I bring this idea to light? What, you know, yeah. like startup supports um, can there be? I just feel like there's a lot of ideas that already exist mm-hmm. that we're just not capitalizing Like a on. nurse incubator, right? Oh, yeah. And, and there's like, some I'm, out there. It's starting ooh, to really? Come. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's definitely nurse incubators out there. Um, and I just think we need to invest more in that area um, of innovation in femtech. Well, maybe that's a, a program we put on at some point, right? A, a nurse incubator for women's health. 
right? Like, and we get what, what the nurses are telling us about, you know, uh, how, what they see in terms of women's health and what they wish existed. And, and then let us crazy entrepreneurs, like try to do work with y'all and create a solution. Um, Heidi, this has been such an awesome interview. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Heidi Morin, founder and CEO of Parity Healthcare Analytics. Learn more at www.paritystaffing.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.